amazing weekend, amen? How many of you guys went to the, uh, at least one of the Will Graham celebration deals? How many of you guys? Awesome. Um, they have statistics for everything, but I'll just say this. Hundreds and hundreds of people gave their lives to Jesus this weekend. Awesome. Amazing. Um, I love what Will Graham said. Uh, Pastor Steve and I had the opportunity to go behind stage and pray with him before the sessions. And after the kids' session, where literally hundreds of kids gave their lives to Jesus, Will kind of looked at us and said, you know what that means, right? We just stole a generation from the devil. Or so, however you say it in North Carolina accent, but we just stole a generation from the enemy. Amen. So true. Hey, um, we are in the book of Exodus tonight. And if you're just joining us, what we're doing is we're going through the, book, the Bible. And we're going through Exodus on Wednesday nights, just verse by verse and chapter by chapter uh, we're in chapter 18. We'll look at all of chapter 18 tonight, Lord willing. And 18 is, you know, it falls in the middle of a lot of context, a lot of stuff before and after, but we'll talk about that in a second. But just kind of get there if you're not there yet. And uh, if you're not familiar with your Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, so chapter 18. Let's pray while we're getting settled in and uh, we'll get rolling. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, I always have to kind of pause and just remind myself how amazing this is, Lord, to do what we're doing tonight, to open the Bible, to have truth, not just another book or so-called holy book, but to have the Word of God spoken into our lives. And Lord, we want to come with humble hearts. We want to come with um, obedient hearts, discerning hearts, Lord. And I, I want to do my best to teach it, but Lord, I, I need your grace. And I pray that no one would take my word for anything, but Lord, we would we would be like those Bereans in the Bible that would search it out for ourselves and see if it's true. As much as we want to learn the word, Father, we want to know Jesus. So teach us about Jesus when it's all said and done in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Well, in Exodus chapter 18, I come to kind of an interesting stop along the way. The children of Israel have been out of Egypt for months now. The miraculous deliverance from Egypt, and we've gone through that whole story, no time to recap it, but they've been making these stops along the way in the desert. Most scholars would tell you that from where they were in Egypt to the promised land, max would have taken six weeks. It will end up taking them 40 years. <laughs> God has intentionally not taken them the fastest route, and by the way, he didn't intend for it to take 40 years. He intended it to take about two, but that's another story that we'll get to later. He didn't take them on the fast route. He took them down across into the Sinai Peninsula. They're camping at all these little spots along the way where God is testing them and proving them and maturing them along the way. And so where they're at now is they're camped at, a, at the place that they call the Mountain of God, which is another word for the Mount of Horeb, which is another word for Mount Sinai. And this is going to be ultimately where they're going to camp for quite a while, 11 months, five days, something like that. Who's counting? And um, they're going to receive, this is where Moses will go up on the mountain. He'll receive the Ten Commandments. He'll get the blueprints for the tabernacle. If, if you're not familiar with that, what that is, we're going to cover that. Um, they're going to get organized and they're going to eventually launch off from there. But before we get to that, um, there's this little chapter that's inserted here that's dealing with kind of some family matters, and it's kind of cool. Whether or not this is chronologically in the right place is up for grabs, but nonetheless, they've inserted it here, and we're going to kind of see what happens. It's dealing with Moses' father-in-law, 
comes for a visit. How many of you guys had your in-laws come for a visit? That's, what, that's what's happening right now. Moses' father-in-law is coming for a visit, and it's this reunion. And then we're going to see uh, Jethro, which is that's his name. He's going to give Moses some very, very um, sage advice. And so let's look at that. Let's look at this chapter. We're going to kind of just chuck along as we go. So let's look at verse 1. It says this, Jethro. Um, okay, stop there for a sec. How many of you guys are old enough to remember the Beverly Hillbillies? Okay, so I cannot say that. <laughs> I know that there's a younger generation. You have no clue what we're talking about, and I'm right on the bubble there. I watched, my parents watched it. I didn't watch it, but anyway, um, yeah, so not, if you're not sure, Google it, okay? But Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard about all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord, and notice the word Lord there is in all capitals, it's a reference to Jehovah God, his name, had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now let's just pause there for a minute and remember who Jethro is because he's, he's given some names. He's, he's Jethro. He's the, high, he's the priest of Midian. He's also called Moses' father-in-law. And, and this kind of harkens back to chapters like 2, 3, and 4. But just to jog our memory, um, remember when Moses blew it. He's 40 years old. He understands, though he's raised as an Egyptian, he knows he's Jewish, and he understands that his calling is to, to free God's people. He's actually right. He just gets way ahead of God and tries to do it in his own effort, ends up murdering an Egyptian, defending an Israelite. Well, they're after him now, and he has to run for his life, and he runs east several hundred miles to this area of Midian, the Midianites, where he ends up at this well. Do you guys remember that? He's at this well, and these shepherdesses show up to water their flocks, but they start getting bullied by some other shepherds. And Moses, who is full Egyptian garb at that point, stands up, defends them, chases them off, and then helps water the flocks for the shepherdesses. Well, they get that you know, those ladies run home, and they're, they're like, how'd you get here so soon? Well, this Egyptian guy, they thought he was Egyptian, helped us out. And they describe him, and the dad, typical dad's like, why didn't you bring this guy home? You know, wanting to marry off his daughters, right? So um, they go back, they get, Moses shows up, they hit it off. He ends up staying with this Midianite priest, Jethro, becomes one of his shepherds, and marries one of his daughters named Zipporah. So that's kind of how this whole thing is, has happened. And so, and by the way, just, just to kind of get this out of the way, I'll probably, I'll try to pull it in later. Not to bore you with facts, but this is why we're here. It's a Bible study. Notice that Jethro is a Midianite priest. He's a Midianite. Midian. So the Midianites, because that's going to come up a lot as we get going in the story, the Midianites are distant relatives to the Israelites. They're distantly related through Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 25, by the way, you can look at this. Abraham, after Sarah died, had a concubine or a wife named Keturah, and this Midian was the name of one of the sons that Keturah and Abraham produced. There was a lot of other sons and daughters, and it says he sent them away to the east. And so when he sent them away, this is where he landed, somewhere either in the Sinai Peninsula, if you're familiar with the, the geography, um, or even further east into the area of Moab, the Midianites. He's a priest of Midian. Now, what does that mean? Little debate about this. 
Does that mean since he was a relative of Abraham that he was a priest of God? Or does it mean that he was a priest of the pagan gods of the Midianites? Well, you can, you know, glom onto whatever opinion you want. My personal opinion, which isn't worth a whole lot, but my personal opinion is that he's not necessarily a priest of Jehovah, but that he represents pagan gods. And there's a reason for that that I think will manifest later. But all that to say for now, he's a Midianite. Moses hooks up, stays there for 40 years, marries his daughter, and that's how the story goes. Well, what happened? Look at verse 2. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, and now notice that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he, that is Moses, had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one son was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, the God of my fathers was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So this is interesting. What does this mean? It says that Jethro took Moses' wife, Zipporah, Jethro's daughter, and the kids that they produced back after Moses sent them home. What's that all about? Our minds flash back. Nobody knows exactly what, when this happened, but evidently along the way, as Moses started to go from Midian, the Midianites, place where he was at in the desert, after he had had his encounter with God in the burning bush and the calling on his life to go deliver the Israelis the, um, from the Egyptians, he's going along the way, somewhere, whether before they got there or early on in the plagues, it doesn't say for sure, he sends his wife back to her dad with the kids. Most people think this probably went down in chapter 4. Remember what happened in chapter 4. Moses, fresh encounter with God, got the moglo, the whole thing. He's stoked. He's ready to go. He's got this calling. He's, he's, he's in faith stepping out. He's going to be the hero, rescue the children of Israel. And it just has this couple of verses that are very troubling. It says, and an angel of the Lord tried to kill Moses. But Zipporah, his wife, intuitively understanding what's going on, jumps up, grabs their son, gets a sharp knife, and circumcises him, grabs the bloody foreskin, and throws it at the feet of Moses and says, you're a bloody husband to me. That's in the Bible. That's gross. So what happened there? And we taught all about that. It, it, it evidently, you see, what happened is God was making a statement. Why in the world would God call Moses to go do a ministry and then try to kill him? I think God was trying to t teach us something, and that lesson was this, if you remember. Moses, you're about to go do this great ministry for me, but you've neglected your ministry at home. Your first order of business was to circumcise your own kids, which was an outward of an inward. Does that make sense? It was the sign that they were dedicated to God, and Moses evidently had neglected his duties at home. And I believe what God was saying is, I am deadly serious about this principle. And so he's going to kill him. Zipporah springs into action like a lot of women have to do when dad neglects the spiritual duties at home. Mom has to do it. And just like what happened with Zipporah, she's bitter about it. She throws that bloody thing at Moses' feet and says, you're a bloody husband to me. And the vibe you get from reading that is she's bitter. She's not into this. Most people think it's at that point Moses sends her back, 
sends the kids back. And I wouldn't make a case for this biblically, but where it says that he sent her, I did read one translation that could even be translated or has been used. I'm not saying it is here, but it has been used for even divorce before. But this idea was he sent his wife home. I'm not saying he divorced her. I'm just saying this was kind of a big deal. And I've often wondered how Jethro received that. You know, I gave my daughter to you. You're supposed to be her protection, her, t- her, her caretaker. These are my grandkids, and you send them back so you can go do this ministry for God? And I wonder, I often wonder how that sat with Jethro. But anyways, they make, he received them back. And notice too, just as kind of an aside, uh, this parenthetical note, it gives the names of his son, his sons. Names are important in the Bible. What were their names? Gershom which sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner or stranger or alien, refugee, if you would. Why? Because Moses was a refugee, a stranger, an alien when he had to leave Egypt. And then he names his other kid Eleazar, which means my God is help because he says, because God helped me against the hand of, of Pharaoh, and he, and he saw God's hand in all of this. And, and I say this because just for, to take the time for a second, because names are important in the Bible. And have you ever thought about how Moses felt when he left Egypt, by the way? Can you imagine growing up in royalty as this high-ranking Egyptian, maybe the prince of Egypt in the, in the wings? But because of this stupid act or this pressure that was on him, he had to leave left his family, left his culture, left his language, left his people, left his land to a place he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know their culture, didn't know their language, didn't know, he didn't fit in. He was lost. Can you imagine how lost Moses felt? Feeling that he'd blown it, that his purpose for life was up in smokes. And I just, I just feel for Moses when he left. And he just says, well, I guess I'll just be a shepherd in the backside of the desert in obscurity for the rest of my life. He was a refugee. I use that word on purpose uh, because, you know, all through the Bible, God has a heart for what he calls the strangers, the aliens, those who are in a strange land, who have been forced out of their land in somewhere else. In fact, it says in Leviticus later on, it says this um, in the law. He says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. When somebody from the outside comes to your land, you should not do them wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native who's among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. Why? Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. All throughout the Bible, God has a heart for those who are at a disadvantage. And maybe this is close to my heart because a few years ago, I think I've shared this story. I had had the opportunity to go to Germany and, and work with refugees who were being forced out of Syria and in Iran and I sat down and, and I talked with 20 year old kids the, ki- the, the age of my kids who weren't with their families anymore had to run for their lives who saw relatives I talked with one guy who's, who saw his mom being thrown in a pit um, full of sticks and stuff there by his uncles to kill her because she had converted to Christianity I talked to guys that their stories would leave you in tears. And they're sitting in a metal box, like, like you know how we use our Sunday school teacher, the, our Sunday school room? And they, a refugee camp, just that's their homes now. Syrians, Iranians, Afghans. 
and, and you know, and, I, and I, it's a sensitive subject because we've kind of turned it into a political situation, and there's a political realm to it, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have laws and borders and things like that, but I think as Christians, we need to be the first to understand that we need to show empathy and sympathy and love to those who have been, f they didn't want to be forced out. They're, they're people that just want to have a family and life. And, and I think, um, I'm not saying this church, I'm just saying the church, I, I, I know, I've heard of churches that when refugees have come to the United States, they're there with signs saying, we don't want you, send them home. When what they need is a Christian to say, we love you and we're glad you're here and we'd love to share Jesus with you. Amen? And so, not a loud amen on that, but that's okay. God loves the sojourner. All that to say, it's a story of Moses and how he was so lost, but then he able to say, but God was my help. And I'll tell you, in those unstabling times of life, you're going to find that God is your help. Anyway, he goes on in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. In verse 6, says, and when he sent word to Moses, he said, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Does anybody find it weird that it says, and her two sons and not your two sons? Does it say your two sons in the King James? It says her. I didn't check. I should have checked. I just find that interesting. It's like your wife and her kids. They're kind of his kids too. But anyway, um, I lost my place. Verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other of their welfare, and they went into the tent. So again, I, I don't want to read too much into this, but I, I, I'm just putting it on a human level. Moses hears that Jethro, his father-in-law, has showed up. He's camped somewhere out there. Remember, there's two and a half million people. There's a runner who comes and says, hey, your father-in-law is here with your wife and your kids. And I just wonder if, if Moses thought, oh, how's this going to go? Because last time I saw my wife, I sent her away. Um, Jethro had to take care of them. Is this going to be a good meeting or a bad meeting? And you almost get the vibe in verse 7. They're feel, feeling each other out. It says they, they both bow down before one another. By the way, that's a very cultural thing. Um, you know, in the West, we'd be like, then they ran. He ran to Zipporah, his wife, and they embraced, and they swung in circles, and they were finally reunited. She's not even mentioned here. He goes to dad. And this is very much a cultural thing. They go and they, they bow to one another. It was a form of respect. He's respecting Jethro, but Jethro is respecting Moses now as a leader. And it says they go into the tent. And they ask each other, I love this, look at, look at verse 7. And Moses went in, and they asked each other of their welfare. So it went like this. How's it going? Great. How you doing? Great. How's things at home? Good, good, good. You? Great. How are things are great? You know, you know, I'm not saying it was that way, but it almost feels like it's a little cold at first. But look at verse 8. I love this verse. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the Listen to this. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Again, slow this down a little bit. Put it into a, a real-life context. They're in the tent, and Moses begins to just tell the story. He begins to rehearse to Jethro all that God did to Pharaoh, all that God did in Egypt— 
I'll tell you what, Dad, I was there, and God had spoken to me, and I, was, I went into the court of Pharaoh, and see this stick, this one right here, I threw it down. That thing became a snake. What a snake? I'm telling you it was a snake. And then I picked it up, and he's going, he's telling the story, no way. Yeah, and then this one other time, I took it, I dipped it in the water. The water turned to blood. Blood, blood. No way. Then the frogs. And, Dad, I know you hate frogs. You would have hated this plague. There was frogs everywhere. And he's just going on, and he's telling about how God did all this stuff and all this stuff, and how he ultimately just culminated in the Passover and the death of the Lamb and the, the angel passing over and then ripping them out of Egypt, and they were going in the Song of Miriam, and they were rejoicing. But then the Red Sea happened, and, Dad, you wouldn't believe it, and God just split there, and we walked on dry land. And I'm getting amped up telling it, but uh, unrehearsed. But anyway, I imagine, and I, again, I don't mean to read into it, but I can only imagine, I can only imagine, sorry, that, <laughs> that Moses was like also getting a bit amped up, talking about it, the deliverance. But then notice this, and I have this underlined too, this part, and all the hardship that came upon them along the way and how God delivered them from all of it. Once we were out of Egypt, that wasn't the, the rest of the story, Dad. We got to a place, we were thirsty, we had no water, and we got to some water, but we couldn't drink it. It was bitter. But God did this miracle, and he made the water sweet. And we didn't know where we were going, but see that pillar of cloud over there? That's the presence of God. He's actually leading us. But then he led us to a place, and we didn't have any food. And you know what? He brought quail. And not only that, tomorrow morning we're going to get up and I'm going to show you something. I don't know what it is. We call it manna. It's food from heaven. And not only that, after that, we came and we had no more water again. And God made a river of water come out of a rock, a rock, a rock. And it's on and on it goes. But then we got attacked by the Amalekites. And guess what? That we went up on the hill, we prayed, and Joshua was in the valley. And he delivered us from all. And he talks about all the, listen. I'm, I'm, I'm camping here, pun intended, for a, a purpose. It wasn't that they just got saved out of Egypt. There were hardships along the way. And God delivered them out of all of them. Amen? And he's rehearsing that to his dad, his father-in-law. And Jethro's response was like, praise the Lord, that's awesome. He's just excited. And I just want a couple of things on this. The reason I underlined all the hardships along the way is because how many of you guys have found out you might be born again and saved and you're going to heaven, but how many of you guys know that there's hardships along the way? Amen. There's, it's not just smooth sailing. Part of it's because it's a spiritual battle, but part of it's, guys, because we just live in a plain old fallen world. And there's financial hardships, and there's health hardships, and there's relationship hardships. And I, I want to just remind us, and I know we've already heard it recently in sermons this, this month or, or so, but they come. And you're going to hit some more of them. But how many of you tonight could say this? As I look back on my life, I have not enjoyed those hardships, but my God has been faithful to deliver me out of them and through them. Amen? Maybe you're in the middle of one tonight. I want to encourage you to do something. I want you to think about all the other hardships in your life that God has brought you through. And do you think that this is going to be the one where he forgets to come through? It might take longer. It might be harder than you want it to be. But this is not going to be the time where God forgets to be faithful. Amen? And I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned that like Moses, when I talk about what God has done in my life, I get pumped. 
It's good for us to rehearse to ourselves, to other people, the things that God has done, especially when we're in the middle of a hardship. Amen? How many of you guys have shared the Lord with somebody, and as you're sharing the Lord with somebody, you're wanting to get saved again because you're just so stoked about it, right? You're like, hey, pray with me now, okay? but you're already saved. I know, but let's just do it anyway because that that's awesome. And when you start talking about how, you know, people ask me sometimes about the story about how we adopted J.J., I just found myself doing this the other day, and I was like, oh, yeah, we adopted JJ. Well, how'd that go down? Well, let me tell you how, how God put it on my wife's heart to, uh, to do foster care. I just wanted to be an empty nester, and God laughed at me. Anyways, so we got certified to do foster care, and then, and then we prayed one night, God, if, you know, how come we don't have any placements? If you don't want us to do this anymore, we won't do it anymore, and, you know, we'll, we'll pull out. Next day, we got a phone call. We have a little boy just born last night. You want him? Yeah, we'll take him in. And we took him in, and, and we loved on him, and we were just like, okay, we're just going to, we'll, we'll, we'll play our part. We'll do our little, our little gap here, and we'll foster him for a while and give him back to mom. And then the Lord began to put in my wife's heart. It's always the wife. Tricks you through the wife. Um, we should adopt him. Like, no way. I'm 40 years old, and I'm not starting over with a baby, right? Just getting rid of Libby. I don't want, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Libby's here tonight. Um, I don't know why I'm going into the story, but oh, I was talking, I got the privilege of meeting Aaron Schust, and he, he did that song, Ever Be. Your praise will ever be on my lips. In that song, there's a line that says, you father the orphan. I was in a church service in Vancouver, and they were singing that song, and that line came in, and I just began to bawl because God spoke to me right there. You're going to be adopting that little boy. Changed my heart. I told my wife, I go, this is one thing I can't stand about my wife. You can't get anything past her. We're driving home. I'm like, honey, I think God spoke to me about adopting. She's like, during the song, huh? I'm like, let me have my moment. Stop stealing my glory. But the point I'm trying to make is that when you tell how God has brought you through and you start telling your story and you tell how the hardship and how the Lord delivered you, it's not only good for the hearer, it's good for the one who's telling the story. It bolsters our faith and we, can, we go, you know what? That's right. God was faithful then. He's going to be faithful now. And he's gotten me through all these things. And this might be hard and it stinks, but God's faithful. Amen? Amen. We'll look at, back to our story, verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, which is another way of saying praise the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 11, now I know, and that's a phrase I think is interesting. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they, that would be the Egyptians, dealt arrogantly with the people. So, so Jethro, it's interesting thing what he says here. He's like, after hearing the testimony, he goes, now I know that the Lord, and he uses the, the tetragrammaton, or that's how we have it, the, the name for God, Jehovah. Now I know Jehovah is greater than all gods. Now that's why, that's why I said I believe that he was a priest of false gods because he's been dealing with a lot of false gods. And by the way, less than 40 years from now, it's the Midianites that team up with the Moabites that hire Balaam to curse the Israelites, but it's Moabite women and Midianite women who take Baal, their idol, down into the camp and have sexual immorality with the men, introducing them, and this is how we worship our God, too. And it says they were Midianites. 
And so that tells me that there's this root of false religion in the Midianite culture. That's kind of why I form my opinion. Again, it's neither here nor there necessarily. But he says, now I know. When did he know? When he heard the testimony of all that God had done. He says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. And, and, and a word on that, listen. Where's the proof that Jehovah was greater than all gods? He was able to deliver in the time of hardship. Listen to me, guys. This is the dividing line. This is why all other gods prove impotent. This is why all other gods will ultimately prove to be powerless because in the day of your hardship, they cannot deliver you. What other gods? The other idols. And guys, in the United States, unlike India where there's actual idols for everything, and I've been there and I've seen them, but guys, we are idol-making machine right here in the United States of America. We may not produce the idol and worship and bow down to it, but we erect them in our hearts don't we? Our bodies are an idol, the way we, you know, the way we eat and take care of ourselves, and you should eat well and take care of yourself, but it can become an idol. Your physique can become an idol. Your marriage can become an idol. Your house can become an idol. Your car, your money, your position, your, all these things can become idols, but guess what? In the day of hardship, they cannot deliver you, and sometimes God has to allow those idols to be proven to be impotent so that we'll know that only God and God alone is the one that can deliver us in our hardship. Amen? Hey, you know what? Having a really ripped body is not going to save your marriage. It might hamper it, actually. You know what? Oh, I could go on and on. You guys get the point. My wife tells me I do go on and on, so here's me proving her wrong. Let's move on. Verse 12. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So the burnt offering, this would have been, by the way, like a, a free will offering. It would have been like completely given to God. But then the other sacrifices, part of it would be offered to God and part of it would just be barbecue, literally. By the way, this is why another reason why I think this story actually could have been inserted later after the giving of the law, when they have regulations for burnt offerings and other sacrifices. Again, we could talk about that little technicality. Verse 13, now we shift gears. The next day, look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning and until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening. Verse 15. And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, can you imagine that uh, 2.5 2 million people camping together might have disputes once in a while? Um, they come to me and, they and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Again, this is why I think that this chapter does actually be long chronologically later because they haven't gotten the laws yet but uh, again just another little tidbit doesn't matter um, then I lost my place again verse 17 Moses father-in-law said to him listen what you are doing is not good you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out because the thing is too heavy for you you're not able to do it alone 
Now, pause there for a minute. So here's what happens. Next day, Jethro is just hanging out. Moses gets up and goes to work, basically. He goes and he sits at a certain central place in the camp. He's there, and from morning until evening, he's hearing cases, if you would. He's like the judge. He's kind of the one giving right, wrong counsel, some small cases, some large cases, but he's the guy. And it says from morning until late in the evening or dinner time or whatever. And at some point, Jethro gets him aside and says, what in the world are you doing? What do you mean, Dad? I'm just like, you know, I'm counseling. The, they come to me for the laws, and I tell them what's going on. And, and notice the phrase here. It's really interesting. He says, what you're doing is not good. And then verse 18, he says, you will certainly wear yourselves out. The word there literally means to wither. You're going to wither. This thing is way too heavy for you. Notice he says, not just for you, but for the people. Moses, don't you understand? You can't keep, this is not sustainable. This is so heavy a burden there's no way you're going to be able to do a good job at judging all these people and they're going to wither too because they're going to get upset their case isn't going to get heard in a timely manner and they're going to get and this is just not good all the way around does that make sense so basically what he's saying is you cannot do this by yourself you got to fix this and the people verse uh, 19 so now he's going to give him some advice he says 19 now obey my voice, and I will give you advice, and God be with you. And the idea there is, you let God help you decide whether this is good or not. You shall, be, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way that which they should walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from around all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such a man over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great or big matter they shall bring to you. But any smaller matter they shall decide among themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure. In other words, you'll be able to do this long term, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. In other words, so, so basically here's the thing. He says, Moses, here's what you need to do. You need to delegate. You cannot do this by yourself. You are obviously the called man. You're the tip of the spear. You're the guy, yes. We understand that, but what you need to do is pick out some guys, teach them, and, and you know put them over a certain amount of people, and the smaller matters can go to them, and like circuit court, if you would. But if there's a big matter, it can go to you. Does that make sense? This is great advice. This is really, really sound, good advice. It's, it's great leadership advice. Listen, it's great leadership advice. And whether you're in any kind of leadership, whether it's business, whether it's family, whether it's Certainly church, and I don't believe that this was meant to be a church model necessarily, but there's definitely some principles that would translate and that are good in this whole area of church leadership uh, in the New Testament era. The first thing is this. No one person can do it all by themselves. Amen? There's got to be delegation. Acts chapter 6 actually deals with this um, when the apostles that we might call the pastors at that point were serving the tables for widows, which is a great ministry, but they understood something. If we do that, we can't do the thing that we're called to do, which is to pray and to minister in the Word. 
And so that was born was the deacon ministry. Just on an, on an aside, in the New Testament, there's really just two categories for church leadership. There's the deacon, which is overseeing the physical needs, and there's the elder overseeing the spiritual needs. Now, there's a lot of leeway on how you organize that. There's not real strict rules on how that works in the New Testament, but those are kind of the separation. My point is, is that there's a recognition that not one person can do the whole job. Amen? Do you guys know a pastor can't do the whole job? One thing I loved about the Bill, the Will Graham Association is they were training us as counselors, hey, look, guess what? Lead somebody to Christ, and then you take home that follow-up card, and you call them and follow up. Because, listen, the church is called to go and make disciples, not the pastor to make all the disciples. Being at church is part of that discipleship process, but there's no way a pastor can do all of it. Does that make sense? Did you know your pastor's not called to organize the potlucks and do all the— Listen, no. If a pastor tries to do all the work, he will burn out. It's not good for anybody. Amen? So there's got to be delegation. And that's true in just so many areas of leadership. We could talk more about that, but I want to point out to you the qualifications that, that, that he said to look for. Don't tune out. Listen to this. This is important. And you might say, well, well, I'm not necessarily in a position of choosing leaders. But listen, you might be someone that is a potential leader someday. And these are qualities that are so good. Listen to what he says. We'll do it quickly, but listen. Verse 21, look for people that are able men. And, and we, men or women, just depending on what the case is. But the first thing is you have to be able. There's a lot of people that are willing, but you have to be able to do certain things. Whatever the thing is. You know, there's a lot of people that are willing to be worship leaders and would love to be on stage, but they don't have the gifting or the calling to do that. Does that make sense? They would love to be on stage, though. There's a lot of people that are willing to want to come up, and I think I should teach your Bible study. I think Steve could probably tell you some stories. You get those people that come to your church and like, I feel the Lord's calling me to take your pulpit and teach today. And you're like, I feel like the Lord's saying you're an idiot. You know, you would never say that to them out loud. But that's your inside voice. Um, where am I going with this? I'm getting in a hurry. I need to slow down. Listen, he said, look for people that have the ability to do the job you need them to do. And one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ is that God has given all of us certain giftings and abilities. Amen? But we're not all called to do the same thing. And so in this particular need, he, he needed overseers. So he said, look for people that are able. Now, some would be able to oversee tens. Some would be able to oversee hundreds. Some would be able to oversee thousands. There's different capacities, but he says, but, but still look out among and, and see some people that are able. Well, how would he know if they're able or not? Because if they have been given that ability, they'll be doing it to some degree already. Does that make sense? Here's a trick. Here's how, here's how people get really promoted, if you want to use that word, or get really involved in church stuff. There's an old saying, deacons deacon, and elders eld. Way before there's ever a, a title given or a name given. Sometimes the title ruins it all, to be honest with you. When you're looking, when, you know, when I was pastoring in Oregon, and I'm sure this works, when I was looking for elders, I was looking for guys that didn't come up and give me a resume and tell me why they should be an elder. Usually those go to the bottom of the pile. I'm looking for people that are already elding. I'm looking for people that are concerned about other people's souls and that are praying with people just in, in the corner and just ministering the word to people, and, and I'm keeping an eye on them. Or if I need a servant or a deacon or whatever, I'm looking for people that are coming early and just serving without having to be told to, picking up trash when they see it on the floor. 
You understand what I'm saying? They're already doing it. So Moses is told, look for guys that are, have this ability and grab those guys that have that God-given ability. And then it says, from all the people who, who n- number two, fear God. And we could talk about this all night because this concept of the fear of God is from tip to tail in the Bible. But the idea is this. You need, if you're going to have an overseer, you need somebody that cares more about what God thinks than what people think. You want somebody who has a reverence for God. Proverbs 9 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of God is something really good. I can't remember the word. Insight. The knowledge of God is insight. I will say this. Listen, this is why there's so many of our politicians or whatever leaders in certain circuits fail because they don't have a fear of God. That's the baseline. If there's no fear of God, then the, the moral compass is all askew. Does that make sense? And he says, we need people that fear God first and foremost. And he goes on and says, that are trustworthy. Um, I think uh, the King James has a different word for trustworthy. What does it say there? Truth. The idea there in the original language is somebody that is faithful. The word actually means to be firm. It actually speaks of a parent being firm and consistent faithful. You want to be a a, a leader type person in whatever realm, church, work, family, whatever. First of all, use your God-given abilities. Fear God and listen, be faithful. Keep showing up. Don't be late for work. Be early. Come to church on time. Serve the children's ministry and be there 15 minutes early. Don't come, you understand what I'm saying? That's not, I'm, that's not directed at anyone. I've just done this a long time. Listen, faithfulness, faithfulness, being there, being there often, being there early, being there late, being engaged when you want to, when you don't want to. If you work out, you know, you do athletics, you don't just pick and choose when you feel like working out. You know there's a goal. Hey, if I'm going to progress, I need to be faithful in this. And would to God that we would approach our jobs, our ministries, our lives like that. Amen? With faithfulness. And I'll tell you, what does it say? When Jesus welcomes us home, he's going to say, well done, thou good and effective servant. Does he say that? Well done, thou good and well-known servant. No, he says, well done, thou good and faithful. I think faithfulness in God's economy carries a lot of weight. We're almost done. Those who hate a bribe, so that speaks of integrity. Um, Doing what's right when no one's looking. Place such men over these people. I I underline the word place because I like that. It means to appoint them. Listen to me. This is not a small point. He was to see people that had the potential, grab them, and appoint them to that role. That whole idea speaks of an understanding of authority and a chain of command. The people that were being put into authority understood that they were under authority. Does that make sense? That's something I see a lot in this upcoming generation that is lacking, this idea of being under authority. I want to give authority. I want to have authority. Well, then you need to learn to be under authority. And that starts in your home, being under the authority of your parents. It used to drive me crazy when my kids would play sports and all of their teammates would talk trash about their coaches. Whether they were good coaches or bad coaches, I would tell my kids, it does not matter. They're your coach, and you will not participate, as, as long as I hear it, 
in any kind of bad talk about your coach. I don't care what decisions he's made or what the other kids are saying. He's your coach and he is your authority, right? Your teacher. And there's such a lack of that. It's just part of the end time scenario, right? There's such a lack of respect for authority. If you want to be a person that has authority, you need to be a person that understands how to be under authority. Hugely important. He goes on to... um, give the rest of the advice. But those are the guys he was looking for. We'll wrap it up here. It says in verse 24, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and he did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and he made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. And they judged the people at all times and any hard case they brought to Moses and many of the small matters they decided among themselves. And then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. Um, Again, one of the questions about this whole section is, when did this happen? Most people think it happened a little bit later after the law was given, maybe months down the road. There's reasons for that. I'm not going to get into them. It's already late. But there is one last question that is brought up about this section. And I'll, I'll deal with it quickly, but listen. People ask, was it right for Moses to obey Jethro's advice? Or was it worldly wisdom? The reason that question arises is twofold. Number one, because there's no record in here of Moses ever going to God to ask God if this was good wisdom. But, but you would protest, but it works, but it's wise, but it makes sense. No one's debating that. It is great wisdom. Another reason the, the question comes up is because later in Numbers chapter 11, God, as they're leaving from Mount Sinai and moving towards the promised land, God then says, Moses, gather 70 guys. We're going to make them elders. And it's like he institutes his own leadership or maybe takes those same guys with one small difference. He says, gather them together, and I'm going to get them together, and the spirit that's upon you, I'm going to put upon them as well. So the debate goes something like this, and it's not that big of a deal, but they say, well, was it right for Moses to obey Jethro? It seems like he wasn't seeking God. Um, and then later, God doesn't even mention Jethro's plan and institutes its own similar plan, so should he have just waited? Or is it a mixture? But and there are those who say, who cares? It works. See, I understand why it's an important question. I understand why it's an important question. Because, listen, there can be a danger of looking out into the world and saying, what's working and then grabbing it and bringing it into the church, thinking if it works and makes sense, God's got to be in it. Does that make sense? And all of a sudden, then the church becomes like it's being run like a Fortune 500 business instead of a church. Does that make sense? And you see this all the time. And what, we, what, can, what can happen, and that's why I think I appreciate the debate, is that what can happen is that we can start leaning on our principles and start leaning on our organizational skills and stuff that works. Hey, it works to put a, a, the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, too. But just because it works doesn't necessarily mean that's what God wants you to do. Is that, you understand what I'm saying? So again, I'm not saying this wasn't from God. In fact, I think God honored this, and I think God actually used it, but I understand why the question comes up. But here's the the kicker for me, is that later on when God finally gives his take on it, he doesn't undo what Jethro said. In my opinion, he just kind of adds to it. There was a missing ingredient. What was the ingredient? The Holy Spirit. He says, 
here's, here's what you need to do. Get, get your guys together, but then the spirit that's on you, Moses, I'm going to take that spirit, boom, and I'm going to put it on all the guys. Now there's going to be this spiritual unity that, that no organization, no like manual that you pick up at some conference is going to be able to achieve. It's going to be a supernatural thing. Your organization's great. Your, your wisdom's great, but it's missing the spiritual element. Amen? I love this. You know what it reminds me of, quickly? When Jesus raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. They had the message. They had the mandate. But what were they missing? The means. He says, go into all the world. But then next breath, but don't go anywhere. (laughs) Don't even think about leaving Jerusalem (laughs) until you've been clothed with power from on high. It was only when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit that they were then able to go out. And you can have, a church can have all the organization in the world, all the plans, all the, everything in order, everything, every duck in a row. But if we don't have the Holy Spirit of God, it can be as dry as white toast. Amen? I've been to churches, large churches, where everything's just pop, click. It's like a production, everything's great. But you're like, there's something missing here. You just sense it. Where's the spirit? Does that make sense? We can order our lives perfectly. I can be doing all the right things. But we need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Amen? So may God give us wisdom. Let's pray. You guys are very, 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 very gracious and patient. Let's stand together and we'll pray pray our way out. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for all the hardships you've brought us through. We thank you for all the testimony that we have. We thank you, Lord, for how good you are. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who not only learn lessons of how to be good leaders, but also we'd be good followers. Father, I pray even in this church, Lord, that we would be those who help bear the burden and bear the load. God, that we wouldn't look to certain individuals or groups to carry all the weight, Lord, that we'd, we would serve, Lord. We would do what you call us to do according to the abilities and the giftings you've given us. We pray for Pastor Steve, Lord. We pray, God, you, you would bless him. We pray that you would bless Anna. We pray you would, you would lift burdens off of them and you'd show us how to do that. I pray, God, you'd show us as leadership how to raise up other leaders, how to do a better job at that. Father, I pray that we would be those who take care of our our business at home and all these other applications that we kind of touched on tonight. May your spirit now make application for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I have one really good application I missed, so you'll get it next week. God bless, you're dismissed.